0: <سؤال> Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim, لله رب العالمين Wa al-Aqibatul al ولا Wa al على Al-Muahidin, Wa على أشرف الخلق والمرسلين سيدنا وحبيبنا وشفيعنا وقدوتنا wa عيننا ونور ashraf al-Khalq wa al-Murselin Sayyidina عليه habibina wa shafi'ina wa qudotina wa Amabadu assalamu alaykum wa rahmatullahi ta'ala wa barakatuh. O praise belongs to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and in the gracious of blessings upon our master Sayyidina Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. We express our thanks and gratitude to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala once again for allowing us to attend a class where we desire to increase in knowledge and not any type of knowledge but knowledge specifically to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala's law, fiqh. And our Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam informed us in a tradition that may yuridillahu bihi khayran, that person for whom Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala desires good, yufakkh hu fi din, Allah grants him understanding of fiqh. And that's what we are here for. And our presence here and our intention and our learning more of Allah Subhanahu Wa Taala's law, our increase in knowledge in terms of fiqh is a sign that Allah Subhanahu Wa Taala desires <coughs> and Allah Subhanahu Wa Taala wants good for us. May Allah Subhanahu Subh'ana Wa Taala complete His favours upon us. Amin Ya Rabbi Last week we concluded our discussion on on water, and it was rather remarkable. It was rather remarkable what type of a discussion can be born from something that we take for granted every day. Something that all we do is open our taps and there it is. And there's a there's another dimension to water in all fairness and all honesty. And that is just how easy Allah Subhanahu wa Taala made things for us. Allah Subhanahu wa Taala has facilitated. How Allah Subhanahu wa Taala has uh, has favoured us in the manner in which water comes to us. So I recall that, and I don't know if I mentioned this in the past, but I recall that Habib uh, Muhammad bin Abdul Rahman al saqqaf was not enjoying good health these days. May Allah Subhanahu wa Taala grant him shifa. Grant him. He was speaking about. <coughs> He was speaking about saying and pronouncing Alhamdulillah and what Alhamdulillah means, right? And the first thing and point that he made is that the Al the is what they call the definite particle, the Lamu Al-Ta'arif in the Arabic language, it comes from various meanings. So, Rajulun means man, but when I say Ar-Rajulu, then it means what? The man. the man. So it moves from an indefinite individual, indefinite man, to a specific man, but it's one man. So similarly, you have hamdun, which is a praise. But when I add the definite particle, the lamu tarif it becomes Alhamdul. So hamdun is a praise, and alhamdu is the praise. So hamdun is a praise one, alhamdu, if I use a definite particle just to make something definite, then it means the praise, meaning a specific praise, like Al Rajulu meant a specific man. But that's not the only meaning that the Lamu Ta'rif carries. The Lamu Ta'rif or the definite particle carries various meanings. If the meat, the definite particle, adopts the meaning of Ahad or Jins, then it means it, inca- it covers the entire species. So, if I use the same term, Rajulun a man and I add a definite particle and it becomes Ar-Rajulu, the man, but the now adopts the meaning of jinns, genus or ahd, then it encompasses every person who can possibly be called a man. So, Ar-Rajulu then translates as men. Any male figure that lives in the entire world from the beginning to the end, Ar-Rajulu. You, do you see how it changes? So, ar-rajulu, the definite particle, it could mean really the man, a specific one man, or it would come to the meaning of genes, it could refer to all males, every single one of them. And the first point that they make over here, when we speak about alhamdulillah and praising Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, then one has to acknowledge that it's not your normal definite particle. It's not a normal the praise, single praise for Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. But it's the praise in a multiple sense. That's for jinns or for ahad, which means every type of praise you can imagine is for Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Mm. And the, the point is, come makes is that He says that Allah grants us water and because He made the example of water, that's why I'm sharing it. Because we spoke about water and we spoke about the qualities of water. But uh, what I'd like to take some time out and to express and share with the Jama'ah this morning, is what should our gratitude and thanks and appreciation of water be to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Mm. So he says that, he made the example, and he said that if he was to drink some water. Bismillah. Alhamdulillah. But when you say Alhamdulillah, what is that Alhamdulillah supposed to mean? Alhamdulillah, for whether it was Buddha Jamil or Uncle Ibrahim who opened up the tap and pour this water into the jug. And then taking that jug and placing it in the fridge. And then taking it out of the fridge and carrying it into the masjid. And they do that every day. So you're thanking Allah for guiding them, for giving them energy, for giving them strength to open up that tap for the electricity, for the fridge, for holding that water and eventually them carrying that water here. And before the tap, where does the water come from? The technology that went into the tap all made it possible for me to have a glass of water in front of me. Right? The washers, the mechanics, and then the pipes. The copper that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala gave us. Man can't create, can't make copper. It must be mined. That's a raw source that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala gave us. And then Allah gave man intelligence to take that raw source, that raw metal, and create a pipe out of it. And that runs all the way to the road where council has their points of water. And council's points meet up with other points and eventually it comes from our dams. And our dams, our most famous dam is going to be this Tianbras dam. So you can imagine what type of manpower went into the laying of a pipe all the way from the (coughs) Stianbras Dam to Cape Town? How many hours of labour to dig those trenches? How many hours of labour to lay those pipes? What type of technology must there be to actually get the water from the dam, to run through the pipe all the way to our city? And when the population in Cape Town, because Cape Town is actually used to get the water first, in town where the Gold Acre stands today. That used to be the source of water. Mountain water used to be gathered at the Gold Acre. Some clever uh, Dutchman or British guy, he privatized water and used to sell water to the public. Water that Allah sent down on the mountain. <laughs> privatized it and sold it. But nonetheless, eventually the dam started being used. And when the population of Cape Town increased, and the dam could no longer suffice, there too. to, Engineering. So they had to increase the size of the dam, raise the walls, so it can carry more water. And they had to add more pipes, because one pipe was no longer enough. So now look at the engineering. For that person to have studied engineering, he had to go to university, the establishment of universities. <coughs> the, the intellect, the studies, the theory, all went into his studies, so that he could create the extension of the dam, so that pipes could be laid down and how many hundreds and thousands of minds went into this entire process. And the idea is that... and, and then it's the glass that the water kept in. How did they manufacture this glass? Where did this glass come from? Probably China if you ask me. <laughs> so again, it's engineering, it's intellect, it's the formation and the making of a glass, and it's made in an amazing way, and there's a nice design on it. And then the ship that had to bring that glass all the way here to Cape Town, the containers. Allah said, look at the ships and how it's sailing. You know, are those not clear signs that there's a creator, subhanahu wa ta'ala? And then it had to be eventually unpacked, and there had to be cars and petrol and trucks to bring it all to the supermarket so that somebody could conveniently pick it off a shelf and bring it here to the masjid. And then after all of that allah subhanahu wa ta'ala gives me the energy to raise the glass to bring it to my mouth and then how do i drink it and if allah gave this water the quality then to quench my thirst and if allah didn't allow water to quench my thirst it would not have quenched my thirst even if i want to drink gallons and gallons if allah didn't want it must quench my thirst it would not have quenched my thirst and then the way my body digests this water akhiri and there's countless possibilities. And therefore you said that when you take that sip and you say Alhamdulillah, that's Alhamdulillah for all of that. Oh. All praise belongs to Allah. Wow. <laughs> so that that's another side for us to develop an appreciation for the water that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala brings out of our things. So all things to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala all things to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. I'm assuming there's no questions on water. And then I'm going to move on to the next chapter that speaks about tanning hides and bones. There's no questions. when we speaking about contamination of water. No the water being in case, to watch body. The question the brother is asking, Sidi is asking is that uh, what is the state of water used in a ghusl for the deceased, someone that has passed on? So, uh, what it comes down to is that what is the state of purity of a person who passes on? What is the ruling of ghusl? Ghusl is compulsory. Why is ghusl compulsory? Now, uh, what I do recall is that scholars differ over here. The person who passes on, does he go into a state of hadath, yes or no? And when you are washing him, are you removing hadath from his body, yes or no? You understand the question? And then the answer thereafter is easy. If the ghusl is there to remove hadath, and abstract impurity from the body of the deceased, then the water used in that hostel is considered, while it may still be pure, possibly pure, it's not going to have the ability to purify because it will be considered used water. Right. If the ghusl doesn't remove a hada from the body of the deceased, and the water is still clean thereafter, then it will not be considered used water. Um, yeah, I'll have to double check exactly what is the purpose behind the ghusl of a deceased. Um, even though it will be covered at a later stage, inshallah. But now my current understanding is that the body does enter into a state of uh, impurity. And therefore, when the body is washed, the water would be used. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala knows best. Uh, remind me in the week, so I can double check and share it with everybody. Next week, Sunday, inshallah. No. what category does tears? What category does tears? Tears is a bodily fluid, right? So, um, it's to be treated as such. It would be pure, in that it doesn't make anything impure that it comes in contact with, but it does not have the ability to to purify. Okay, so I'm going to move on to tanning hides and bones, and I'm going to ask our brother Hussain to come and read for us again. Tanning, hides, and bones. Hides of unslaughtered animals are purified through tanning, except for the hides of dogs, pigs, and the offspring of both of them or one of them with a pure animal. The bones and hair of unslaughtered animals are filth, except from human beings. Um, how many of us are wearing leather in the masjid this morning? Anyone has leather? Where's your leather? Hey, your slippers. <laughs> in that case, many of us are wearing leather. So, this is an important chapter because how, especially for the industry today, um, the rule is that you get two, when an animal passes on, it could pass on in one of two ways. He either passes on via the Islamic manner of slaughtering. The key. So it's an Islamically slaughtered animal. Now the animal is halal for you to eat, and automatically the skin and the hide and the wool and the hair and everything of the animal is pure. It doesn't require a tanning, it's just pure. So the question doesn't arise for an animal that was slaughtered according to the Islamic way. Everyone has it. And the Islamic way is simple the animal has to be slaughtered and you have to recite Bismillah when slaughtering, and perhaps later we'll discuss more detail regarding that, inshallah ta'ala. So now the animal is pure, it's fine. The meat is halal, the skin, hair, everything is fine for you to use. No questions asked. The problem we find is that, if the animal was not slaughtered according to the Sharia, so the animal either dies by itself, just passes on, or somebody kills the animal but not according to the Sharia. That's what we call meta. So meta would be carrion And the translation that the author gave over here is unslaughtered, unslaughtered more because uh, an animal that is killed by a uh, what do we call that now? You know today there's so many different ways in which animals are killed. One of the questions that one of the questions that uh, came out to the Fatwa Department is gas. So uh, chickens are. Gas, so what it means that basically it doesn't kill them, so their hearts are still pumping, but they're completely paralyzed. And the idea behind that is once they are placed onto the machine, uh, they need a chicken on a machine that is lying still and not moving about. So that's why they gas them, right? And then, um, but they need the heart to be pumping so that when they slaughter, the blood flows out of the body. So, there are all of the different types of methods in which animals are being killed these days, whether they meet the Sharia requirements of slaughtering or not, is not our discussion right now. Uh, The point is that if it meets the conditions of the Sharia, it's halal and it's hair and hair and skin and everything else is pure along with it. If it does not meet the conditions of the Sharia, it's considered najis impure. The meat is impure and everything associated with it is impure. Its skin, its hair, its hiding, and everything else. The problem we're sitting with is that when Ashi came with his, I don't know if it's leather shoes or if it's leather sandals, but when he came with that to the masjid this morning, what are the chances of that coming from a a Sharia slaughtered cow? Chances, are slim. Right? So where is it coming from? It's coming from animals that were not slaughtered in a according to the Sharia. So, it's in the ruling of Maytah, carrion. Does it mean that the leather cannot be used? Yes or no? So, the author, he said, May Allah Subhanahu Wa Ta'ala have mercy upon him. Hides of unslaughtered animals are purified through tanning. It can be used, but it must be tanned. And this was the hadith of the Prophet Muhammad when he said that, the Prophet walked past a piece of ground, the falat. You know, so it's almost like a dumping area of a group of people. And then he saw that there was a sheep lying there. So he says, why is the sheep lying over here? So they said, Ya Rasulullah, just died, which means it's carrion, it's, it is najis, we cannot eat it. So the Prophet said, yes, but you can still use its skin. And then they said, Ya Rasulullah, is it not najis? And then the Prophet ﷺ responded by saying that A yuma i have in dubiga, any height or skin that is tight, tan, sorry, any height or skin that is tan, Fakatahura becomes pure. So was the skin or the leather on the sandal of Ashi tanned, yes or no? <laughs> it must be tan. <laughs> If it wasn't, if it, if, it, if skin is the, is the idea behind tanning is so that the leather doesn't go bad. There is a there is a moistness within skin and leather. If that moistness is not removed, then eventually the leather start, starts to rot. So it must be tanned. The fact that it's not uh, turning rotten and giving off bad smells means that it is. it was tanned. So it is pure might still be giving of bad well. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if you do know that. But besides that, ask you So you see, that might still be giving of bad smells. So <laughs> <laughs> Either way, so, East tan. The only condition when it comes to tanning, in case you're trying it by yourself, is that uh, tanning must take place with a su- substance, Bishay imp. That's what they use, the word they use in our fiqh, which is an interesting word. When they try to explain what is harir, they say, ma fi harafa. So it must be something that has a, a sting. Harafa is that if you take food that has a quality of harafa and you place it on your tongue, it stings your tongue. You know? Has anyone, has anyone by accident of course, eaten an, an ant? It burns your mouth. So it burns your tongue. So that, that's the quality that you're looking for. So, can you... Ta- is, is tanning valid with salt? Because many, in certain cultures and villages, they would use salt to tan. Is it a valid means of tanning? No, it's not. Because salt doesn't have a burning, stinging sensation when it's placed on your tongue. So it's, it essence, mar- it's an that's acid. What's this? The end. The end. So exactly, the idea is, any substance that's going to burn in itself is a type of an acid. So there were, they say even if the acid happens to be, even if the substance happens to be nudges So some people used to use in the early days, in the lack of, a, in the lack of something else that could be used for tanning, they would use bird droppings. So again, it's something is going to contain an acid that burns, that stings, and it would be used to tan. So it doesn't matter whether the leather is tanned or something which is pure or something which is nudges at the end of the day it comes down to the same thing because even if I'm using a pure substance and I'm applying that pure substance to a skin that is moist, that's already nudges, that pure substance also becomes nudges. So the ruling is it must just be washed afterwards. Everyone, everyone understands that. So tanning purifies skin or hide, that is, that is impure. You said, however, there's an exception that applies to all animals whether it's elephants, whether... it applies to all animals except for the hides of dogs, pigs, and the offspring of both of them, or one of them with a pure animal. So just in terms of the proof, how do we know that the hide and the skin of an animal prior to prior tanning to is impure? Because of the verse in the Quran, Allah Subhanahu wa Taala said, "كل سام تدين محمد صلى الله عليه وسلم لا أجد في ما أُوحى إليه محرما Muhammad, I do not find in that which has been revealed to me something which has been declared haram for a person to eat, a taugeem he eats, unless he is dead." And this happens to be carrion, something which has not slotted according to Islamic law. <laughs> oh, it is religious and religious means najis. So the origin of these things and animals that are not slow to the Sharia is that it's Najis, tanning, however, purifies it. The exception is that of a pig and a dog. And, uh, the khinzir, it's actually a very interesting question, you know if you come to think of it. Um, but before I come to the interesting question, I want to say something about pig-skin. Um, he says, that which is born from a pig and a dog... In other words, if a pig and a dog was to Mate. mate that which is born there from, is also considered najis. And he, it, it doesn't become pure even if you were to it. That's what they would call a hybrid. So, <laughs> I remember... Where he's a Mawlana, so I don't want to mention his name. <coughs> uh, but when we came across this in our fifth class, and then Munata uh, asked the students, What do you call an animal that is born from a pig and a dog? So he said, He was, he was from Kimberley. So he said, Yeah, we have that day in Kimberley. <laughs> <laughs> They said, what, like, what is it? They say, it's a pluck chuckles. <laughs> 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 don't ask me what it is. the word just sticks with me. SubhanAllah. I don't think you have such a hybrid. Oh, no, Allah knows this. But not only a child born from a pig and a dog, a child born from a pig and any other animal, or a dog and any other animal, even if the other animal happens to be pure. And even if the other animal which is pure happens to be the father, doesn't matter. If any of the parent of an animal happens to be a pig or a dog, uh, he, that animal will be considered najis, and <coughs> its hide and skin after its demise, no matter how tight, will be najis and will not be purified through tanning. That's the madhab of Imam al-Shafi'i On pig's skin, there has been a difference of opinion by scholars. So, how common is pig skin within our community? And shoes. Shoes, brushes. brushes, gloves. gloves. But it's something that can be avoided, yes or no? In Australia, we once received a question, they say that it's very difficult to find sandals within Australia that is not made of speak, speak skin. Sometimes, not the leather itself, but with other parts of the shoe contains speak skin, oh, different parts of a pig. <coughs> The scholar Dr. Yusuf Al-Qaradawin, he has a fatwa on the usage of pig skin, and he quoted the views of certain ulama, and of course, he attached himself to the generality of the report. Rasul ﷺ, he said, He said, any skin that is tanned becomes pure. And the Prophet didn't make an exception of a pig and a dog. And if you ever do find yourself in a situation, I'm not, I'm not, some, I'm not going to actually promote this type of opinion that uh, considers the wearing of pig skin to be permissible. Uh, however, if you find yourself in a situation where it becomes extremely difficult to find a a sandal or a shoe, say that it has uh, some pig skin in it, then you know it's possible that we could visit those opinions by a minority of scholars that considered it to be permissible. As for our current situation in a city such as ours, um, it's best not to open such doors, because there is a variety for you to choose from, and no one is in need of using skin. And then also, why risk it? A believer tries to do something where he knows this. Say, Rasool, wasallam, he said that, he said that ma uh, da'mayarebuk, leave that which causes you doubt for that which does not cause you doubt. So leave the uncertain and the unsure for that which is sure. So here in our city, when it comes to leather, when it comes to skins and hides, there's so many things that we can use and therefore it's best that we stay clear from the usage of the skin or the hide of pigs and dogs. Do you have dog skin? Not in South Africa, I don't think you have it over here. <laughs> right. So the bones, he goes on and he speaks about bones, so he says the bones and hair of unslaughtered animals are full except from human beings. <laughs> Similar to the skin, the bones of animals. Uh, this was a question I was just asking myself now. How common is the usage of bones within our society? Because in the Shafi'i school, if the animal is not slaughtered according to Shari'a, if it's not daki, if it's, uh, it's carrion, then the bones doesn't become pure, it stays folded. But how common is it for us to be using bones within our society? Not common at all. And so it doesn't pose, a, doesn't pose a problem. There is opinions within other schools that don't necessarily consider Bones to be impure. Our reason for considering bones impure would be one. We actually read it now in Surah Yasin. We actually read it now in Surah Yasin on the last page. May yuhil ayzama wa hiya rameen. Right? This was a, a a disbeliever by the name of Asib ibn Wa'il. He came with, a, he came with a, a bone that was dried out and dead and then He took the bone in front of the Messenger وسلم, and He crushed it into dust and then He says, who's going to give life to this bone after it has been crushed into dust? And then what did Allah say? <laughs> the one who created it from nothing will give life to it again. <laughs> how can you question Allah? How did it come in the first place? If Allah could create it from nothing, then how easy must it be for Allah to restore it from something? Mm-hmm. Right? So, <laughs> where the teacher? Where the teacher Mawlana Suleiman Abel? He said that As ibn Wa'il was an as. <laughs> <laughs> So bones of carrion and its hair remains nudges, save that of a human being. Human beings don't become impure when they pass on. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala said, bani Adam. Indeed we have honored the children of Adam. And is that is that ruling particular to believers or to all, all human beings? Allah said bani Adam." We have honoured all of humans. And therefore, life is something which is sacred. Life is something which is sacred. So there is a verse in the Qur'an that gives the impression that non-Muslims are najis, but that shouldn't be understood uh, upon its apparent meaning. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala said, إِنَّمَا الْمُشْرِكُونَ نَجَسٌ They are full. But they are not full physically. So when you touch a non-Muslim, it doesn't mean your hands become najis. Right? So, a dog is Najit and when there is witness on the dog, and you touch that witness, the witness is a tool for the najasa of a dog to transfer over from him to someone else. Therefore, the problem with the wet dog. Right? But, does that mean that when I touch the hand of a disbeliever and his hand is wet, that najasa came over to me? No, when Allah said that the Mushrikun, those who ascribe partners unto Allah Subhanahu wa Taala, are najas, <coughs> I didn't mean a physical impurity. It meant that they, they believe i'tiqad, the akira the that they have is a filthy akira. That's what it meant. Uh, and not that they are physically impure. So that brings us to the end of tanning of hides and bone. And how is our time? Can we do at least another one? Yes, please, Using containers. <coughs> It is imper- impermissible to use gold or silver containers. It is permissible to use containers made from other expensive materials. So he gets into a discussion of utensils, containers or utensils. I was, I was hoping to get to the next chapter this morning. Let's just see how, how quick we can run through this. So he said that لَا يَجُوزُ وَلَا يَجُوزُ اسْتِعْمَالُ الذَّهَبِ وَيَجُوزُ اسْتِعْمَالُ غيرهما مِنَ الأواني. So, gold and silver utensils, the Prophet ﷺ prohibit that in the hadith. He said in the tradition narrated by an Imam Muslim Ta'ala and Imam al-Bukhari, May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala be pleased with him from Hudhaifat ibn al-Yaman an that Rasul said, Do not wear silk wala dibaj. Dibaj is a type of silk as well. وَلَا فِي آنِيَةِ الذَّهَبِ وَالْفِضَّةِ Do not drink from a utensil of gold or silver. وَلَا تَأْكُلُوا فِي صِحَافِهَا Do not eat out of plates made of gold or silver. فَإِنَّهَا لَهُمْ فِي الدُّنْيَا For it is for them, the disbelievers in this world. فِي الْآخِرَةِ And it is for us in the afterlife. آخِرَة. Right? And similar to eating and drinking, the Prophet prohibited eating and drinking from gold and silver utensils, but uh, analogies, analo- the, the scholars made, draw draw, they, they drew an analogy they made qiyas, and any usage of gold and silver will not be permissible except for females when it comes to jewellery the Prophet he said that it doesn't apply to to females when it comes to jewellery and adornment Khair um, and that international is a discussion over there, there is more related discussion to it, but I'm not going to uh, get into it now because I was hoping to speak about the siwa. And that on the one hand, on the other hand, how common is it for people to be using gold or silver utensils these days? It's just too expensive. Alright? <coughs> uh, in a world in a world where uh, cheap resources could not be used to make things, gold and silver utensils was actually a and sometimes the usage of gold and silver to fix utensils was something which was common. But in a world where uh, it's cheaper to to buy a new plate than what it is to fix a plate, the usage of gold and silver becomes very, rare. and you only find it in very, you know, very very wealthy royal families who, for some reason or other, feel that they need gold or silver, and even they probably won't even be eating out of it. And Allah Subhanahu Wa Taala knows best, and therefore I'm not going to spend much time discussing it. But just know the rule is. That is impermissible to eat out of utensil or drink or to use any utensil that is made of gold or or silver. Just read the next one so we can cover. The that. tooth stick. Using the tooth stick miswak is recommended at all times except after the zenith for one who is fasting. Using the tooth stick is more strongly recommended in three situations. Number one, when the taste of the mouth becomes stale as a result of not eating or something else. Number two, when getting up after sleeping, and number three, right before praying. So the miswak. One of the beloved sunnahs to our Prophet Muhammad <laughs> وسلم, that the Ummah is neglecting these days. Mm-hmm. He sallallahu alayhi wa said that Lawla an ala Ummati La Martuum Pisiwaki in the kulli And in a narration he said, in the kulli had it not been that I would have been making things difficult for my ummah, I would have commanded them to use the miswak before every salah. And another he said, I would have commanded them to use the miswak before every ablution, before every wudu. And Rasul sallallahu Sallam's attachment to the siwak, the miswak was uh, something remarkable. Was something remarkable. So, had it not been that I would be making things difficult for my ummah, I would have instructed or commanded them to use the miswah before every salah and in a narration before every wudu. So, um, the Prophet had a great attachment to the miswah. The first thing he would do وسلم, when waking up in the morning was he would use his miswak Before starting his adhkar, before. Or rather, at the same time while reciting zikr and waking up, you would use a as So Rasulullah SAW, when you would wake up in the morning, what do I would he recite? Alhamdulillahi lAdhi. Ahiyana. Ahiyana. praise <protecting music> to Allah Subhanahu wa Taala. Who <whist-> is? Given us life. <inaudible> After years goes us to death, because sleep is a type of death. It's a small death. <laughs> and what else did the Prophet say? The last few verses of Baqarah And to the end of the surah. Beautiful verses Rasul is reciting. You know what at he speaks? Apart from these two things that I always mention over here, the one is that Rasul through his sunnah, through his supplications that he teaches us, he allows you and I to constantly connect to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So when I implement the sunnah, because I'm so heedless and because I'm constantly drifting away from Allah, if I implement the sunnah of Rasul I keep on bringing myself back to Allah all the time. So the first thing I do after sleeping, I start reciting Quran, praising Allah, thanking Allah. Indeed in the creation of the heavens and the earth is a sign for those who believe. Verses of the Quran I start reciting. So the Prophet allows you and I to connect ourselves to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala throughout the day. That's the one Another thing that that you know just appeared to me now with regard to the state of Rasul Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. When he wakes up he's reciting these adhkar. You know, and it's just a, a matter of the Prophet, his sleep was an ibadah. While he was sleeping, his heart was making the dhikr of Allah, subhanahu wa ta'ala because he said, My eyes sleep, but my heart remains awake. So when he wakes up, it's not like you and I who need to start remembering Allah now. He just wakes up and continues remembering Allah. Because he was always in the remembrance of Allah, and then he wakes up and he just continues. <coughs> so his heart was remembering Allah, so when he wakes up his tongue just takes over. Allah salli ala Sayyidina Muhammad wa ala Sayyidina Muhammad wa ashabi wa barik wa sallim. So, and then immediately after reciting the tafkar, that got, used to have a miswak that used to be alongside his bed, and you take miswak and clean his mouth. That was his sunnah, that was his attachment. Um, there was a narration an Imam al rahimallahu ta'ala mentions in his Alam al Nubala about two brothers who are jurists. <coughs> right? And they agreed with each other that whomever of them passes away first, they will visit the other to inform him how Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has treated them. So one passed away. And a few days later, the other had a dream and in the dream he saw his brother and he was so happy to see him and he wanted to know how did Allah treat you, what happened to you after he passed on and he said you know what happened to me was when I passed on I witnessed my entire janazah and I thought it was a dream. I didn't know that I really passed on. So I was there when they made my ghusl and that comes in the hadith Rasul Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. It, and you should believe that when you are performing the ghusl and the proceedings of the janazah, the ruh of the deceased is present over there. So, in case, in case you thought, he's not going to know whether I attended his janazah or not, he's well aware who is coming and who is not coming, right? <laughs> because the prophecy, the ruh is there, the ruh witnesses the entire procedure, who is washing him, who is carrying him, who is doing everything, right? Until the maqbar, until the body is placed in the grave, the ruh is there following. Which is an interesting thing, because people believe that the arwah, that the ruh of an individual can't be around us. But there is the most clearest example of the ruh of the person being with his body until he's placed in the grave. And after the grave, Allah allows those whom He wants to leave the grave and not. That's not our discussion right now. But this person said, I witnessed the entire proceedings of my janazah, but I thought it's a dream, I didn't know I really passed on, I just thought I'm dreaming. And then they carried me and they brought, my, they brought my janazah to the maqbara, they prayed on me to the maqbara, placed me in the ground and closed me up and left. And I still thought I was dreaming. I thought I was asleep. And then I woke up from my sleep. Right? I woke up from my sleep. And you see, when I woke up, I woke up as how I usually wake up. Reciting the du'a, Alhamdulillah <laughs> and reciting the verses of the Quran, wa wa And I continue reciting until I came to the end of the dua that a person recites when waking up in the morning. And then I stretched out for my miswa, And then I couldn't find my miswa. And then I called my son, Muhammad, to bring my miswak. So I shouted, Muhammad. And then I saw that there were two people sitting by my feet. And they were the angels that came to question me. And they asked me, what are you shouting for? And then he said, no, I'm shouting for my son to bring my miswak because it's a sunnah of Rasul. <laughs> and the angel says that, you have passed on, brother. And you're no longer in the world. And you're now in your grave. But just based on the way that you woke up, with the sunnah of Rasul and your intention to use the miswa, we can see who you believe in and we can see who you follow. There's no need for us to question you. <laughs> so the miswa can be a cause for you and I to be saved in our graves. But why are we neglectful when it comes to the miswak? The, mis- the miswa, by the way, is a tooth stick, it's a piece of wood. That it comes from the root of an erect tree, a rock in Arabic. And uh, I've, I've actually Googled this with some friends. They say that the tree could grow in South Africa. And then I asked a few friends to phone around to some nurseries to find out if we do have, we found out the proper name. I slipped my mind right now. To actually investigate You know where the tree can be found. The problem we have with miswak locally is that you need to import them. And many a times, a miswak that comes in those plastic packets it's like, Tastes horrible, and when it's kept outside of the plastic packet, it becomes very hard It doesn't last too long. Contrary to a fresh meswak, a fresh meswak is very nice to use. We're trying to plant those trees and to actually have our own roots that we could use to use as meswak, and the, the medical benefits it's a different story altogether. So, you say told us over here that the مُسْتَحَبٌ فِي كُلِّ حَالٍ The usage of the miswa is mustahab recommended at all times, except, بعد الزوال sa'im, except for the person who is fasting, after zawal So, what does after Zawal mean? zawal zawah is dhuhr. And therefore, uh, the last time you're supposed to be using the when when Fasting is just before dhuwar or the waqt of dhuwar, right? Yes, Muhammad? No, so that's the ruling. However, um, the, there is a view in the madhab in the, in the school, that says that the miswak could be used up until, up until asr. You know, so some scholars would use the miswaq up asr and between Asr and Maghrib, they won't use the miswak. Um The ultimate question for me is that where does it come from? Who said that the person fasting cannot use the miswaq after zawah? There's no hadith, there's no Qur'an, there's no statement of the salah. There, there's nothing really to support the view that says the miswaq cannot be used. So where does it come from? The, the, the reason why scholars made this statement, and you can ask yourself how convincing is it really, is because the change of the smell of a person's mouth in Ramadan is something which Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala loves. So Rasul said that, la لَخَلُوفُ saim. The change that happens in the mouth of an individual who is fasting, that, that bad odor that you and I might turn bad, Atyab, عند الله is more pleasant by Allah Subhanahu wa Taala than, than musk. Yeah, Allah loves it more than musk. At our the chibz boys now, the chibz boy they catch on a lot of nonsense. So when when they try to tell you that your mouth's not smelling nice, even if they just had breakfast with you, they say, "Are you fasting today, maybe?" <laughs> so that's not a pleasant smell. But it's more sweet about Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala than musk. So, they said that a person who uses a miswa, it might affect the smell in his mouth. So, instead of having a mouth that smells bad but is more sweeter than musk by Allah, by using the miswa, the mouth won't produce that smell. And that's the only reason why they said one should not use it after sawa. So well. Is it a very convincing argument? Not necessarily. And therefore there were certain scholars who said that the usage of the miswak remains sunnah during the day of Ramadan for a person who is fasting, without putting a cap on zawal, without putting a cap on asr, just in general, continue using the miswak. If you strict in following the position mentioned in the Shafi'i school, use it up to door and stop. And if you want to practice <coughs> on an alternative position in the Shafi'i school, use it up to asr and stop. And if you want to practice on the views of those scholars who believe that the the dalīg the <laughs> or the proof to say that the fasting person should not use the miswaq is not a very convincing one, then use it whole day if you, if you wish. Do you know when you don't practice Rasulullah fasting with the No. If you know about hadith, you can... I just had a very strange. Because you fasted a lot, you used the miswaq or not? I find Oh, that nobody actually... Yeah, because, you see, the companions, they say Rasul his uses miswar before every prayer. So, they wouldn't uh, make a point of saying that the Prophet used it while fasting, if it was a common practice of Rasul However, if Rasul wasallam did not use it on account of fasting, then we could have expected that the narration should have been mentioned. That the Prophet while fasting, did not use the miswar. But nothing like that is transmitted. Which only makes the argument that the usage of the miswak is not reprehensible at all during the day of Ramadan stronger, so to say. Do you follow what I'm saying? And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala knows best. Now is not the time really to get into the detail I'm presenting the views to you. And uh, the important thing is that use the miswak. People are not using the miswak any longer. The miswak was the cause that that person went to paradise. Rasul the last thing he did in this world, the very last thing, when he was laying on the lap of Aisha radiallahu ta'ala anha, uh, Aisha radiallahu ta'ala anha, who was it now? I keep on uh, saying Abdurrahman bin Auf. but was it Abdurrahman bin Auf? I think Abdullah bin Zubair. Abdullah bin Zubair, I think it was because he was the the nephew of Aisha radiallahu ta'ala an. He came in, he stood by the door and he had a miswak in his hand and Aisha said, the Prophet ﷺ was too weak to speak because he was on his deathbed. But she could see that his gaze became fixed on the miswak of Abdullah. And then she told Abdullah, Give me the miswak. And then she said, I took the miswak and I moistened it with my saliva. Because it was dry, it's hot. So I moistened the miswak with my saliva and I applied miswak to the Prophet Muhammad. ﷺ. That's what Rasul ﷺ wanted on his deathbed. That's a attachment that they had to the usage of miswah. And then Aisha radiallahu ta'ala and she actually boasts thereafter, saying that the last thing to enter the belly of the Messenger Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam was my saliva. So when he received revelation, it was at the lap of Khadija radiallahu ta'ala anna, a lady. And when he left this world it was in the lap of his wife Aisha radiallahu ta'ala anna. So they say the outward aspect of prophethood in this world the physical aspect of prophethood started with khadija which was a lady and ended with aisha was a sister so the entire nubu was between two ladies so how is allah honored females so however it is emphasized to use the miswak when the taste of the mouth becomes stale as a result of not eating or something else after sleeping and right for prayer so we pray that Allah grants us consistency in these practices Allah allow us to become from those who use the miswak so we can speak and speak and speak but the miswak must be used in the absence of a miswak our scholars have said that the scarf that you're wearing, or the sleeve of your top, it all suffices in using miswak In fulfilling the Asl of Sunnah, to receive the reward and to be making Rasul sallallahu alayhi wa sallam happy. The complete way is to have the wooden stick of the Araq tree. But, in the absence, you can use the taraf, the end of your top, of your coat, of your jacket, of your scarf. The important thing is to make miswak, Apply something to your teeth to wipe over your teeth. Would a toothbrush fulfill that as like, Another thing that we all use is toothbrushes. But because toothbrush has become something that we see as a, a Western practice and then we lose out. Whenever you use your toothbrush, make the intention of following the sunnah of Rasul Because miswak, or rather siwak, the action of cleaning the teeth, can take place with anything. With a toothbrush, with a garment, with a tissue, doesn't matter as long as it's slightly coarse. There's a debate, can you use your finger for me as well? Of <laughs> course. <laughs> <Well>, maybe <laughs> yours, yeah. Maybe I was bald as So, most Judas said, no, you can't use your finger. They said, what if a guy... This is speak, right? I just want to give you an example of this speak to. So they said, okay, what if a guy lost his finger, right? And then they created a wooden finger for him, can that finger work? <laughs> subhanAllah. Mm. May Allah Subhanahu wa ta'ala guide mm. So we went over time, we are going to read from the Key of Secrets this morning. We will continue with that. Yes, Muhammad. We continue with the Key to the Inner Secrets next week, inshaAllah. Mm. Mm. No. No. So there are many other instances when this work we say it can be used at all times. Hafiz Muhammad is speaking of before reciting Qur'an and so forth. Those are all times when a person should be using it. That's why Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala Except The key to the inner secrets is a very important text. It's just a time for fiqh. went a bit over time. I think uh, what we need to do next week is try to uh, split it a bit more fair. So if if we have about an hour class, we should dedicate 30 minutes to each. Or perhaps 40 minutes to fiqh and then 20 minutes to to Tasawwuf and spirituality, but uh, I concluded with the topic of Siwa, and that really is spirituality, because it's, you know it's these outer aspects of the Sharia that is required for you to develop inner spirituality. And I'll conclude at this point since we're not going to be reading from the Key to the Inner Secrets. You cannot attain inner spirituality if you don't bring the outer aspects of the Sharia in your life. So the example that the example that Sayyid Habib Umar used in those uh, lectures that he gave at the Kramat Masjid during our international spiritual retreat, he said it's like it's like butter that comes from milk. <coughs> he says the person who claims to have reached Allah Subhanahu Wa Taala, and a person who have claims that he has been purified spiritually. But he doesn't have the outer aspects of the Sharia in his life. He's lying. Like a person who claimed that he has butter, but he made that butter without milk. Milk is the outer aspects. You can't get butter without the milk. You cannot attain purification, you cannot attain spirituality without the outer aspects of the Sharia. The Siwak is one of those outer aspects. And therefore, in the city of Tareem, they Amashayesh, place, they place so much emphasis on, the, on something as simple as the miswaq. And if you were to follow their lives, the habaib and scholars you'd notice that you won't find them praying a single prayer, say that they would be using the miswaq. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala ala ush to walk in the footsteps. Wa sallallahu ala Muhammad wa ala alihi wa sahbihi wa sallam. Subhana rabbika rabbil amma wa ala al-musaleen wa al-fahdillahi rabbil ala